Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L, Estates, Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? done or how about hannah horvath's brooklyn apartment in the hit television show girls the real estates app knows all you've seen these places on the screen but with the real estates app you can see them in person it's a great way to explore your city plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with TV shows ranging from The Jeffersons to Modern Family and a whole host of films ranging from Breakfast at Tiffany's to Ted. With the click of a button, you can see which real estates are near you. For all you know, you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real estates where your favorite characters live for more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L-estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, 
Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me reaching out to you. This is you wearing headphones. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I am your host. I am the person talking to you from here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Uh, there's, you hear that? There's a police helicopter hovering over my building. Uh, and I was just uh, sitting here moments ago reading about cynicism in ancient Greece, which uh, which fascinates me currently. Because, uh, you know, obviously we have an understanding of what cynicism means in a modern context. Or at least I think we do. You know, it's, it's to be a doubter, to be mistrustful of uh, humanity, people's integrity, value systems, etc. Uh, but what I've just learned is that the cynics... Uh, of antiquity were moralists of a very uh, intense stripe with a very specific vision. And uh, they would often uh, stage public spectacles to annoy uh, the bourgeois, uh, quote-unquote, normal people, like the upper classes of, uh, of ancient Greece. It was, it was guerrilla theater. Whoa. Something's going on. Uh, so, yeah, so it was like guerrilla theater, and uh, the cynics were sort of uh, scorned, looked upon with scorn. Their nickname is derived uh, from the Greek word for dog, which I think I knew, but I just read it, you know, again, for the first time in a while. And uh, a specific kind of dog, an ankle-biting, small dog. So to be a cynic back in the day was essentially to be an ankle biter. <laughs> and uh, there was this guy named Crates, and I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Crates, Crates. It's spelled just like Crates, C-R-A-T-E-S, Crates. Yeah, like I like calling him Crates. And he was from Thebes, uh, or is it Thebes? I don't know. Crates from Thebes. <laughs> And he was like a preeminent cynic of his day. And he had students and he would have them do all these kind of, uh, you know, things, these guerrilla theater exercises in an effort to uh, shock the public, in an effort to like, you know, um, willingly accept the ridicule of other human beings, to act a fool among fools. And it was done as like a test of will. So that they, you know, might not be diverted from their mission, their cynical mission to uh, live in accordance with cosmic reality and to not get sucked in by the rest of humanity, you know, in some kind of conventional way and into some, you know, some kind of soul crushing mode of living. And, uh, and then, uh, most interestingly, perhaps, uh, is the fact that Crates, you know, acting in a similar vein, is reported to have occasionally uh, engaged in public intercourse with his wife, uh, Hipparchia, <laughs> like in full view of other human beings. And uh, I find this interesting, A, because it doesn't seem cynical, at least at first blush, you know, 
least in the in the modern context, it doesn't seem like something that a cynical person would do. Or uh, maybe it's that it seems like cynicism in action somehow. Because so much of uh, my cynicism, so much of the cynicism that happens today happens internally. You know, it's the voice in your head or it's a snarky comment whispered in the corner. But, you know, this is taking it to a, a different level entirely. And I got to say, uh, I'm a big fan of guerrilla theater. And I almost never see it. When's the last time I saw guerrilla theater, an active guerrilla theater in the streets? I think we need more of it, is what I'm saying. Like Candid Camera. Why is that show not on? There should be some version of that show on the air at all times. And there should be a rated R version of Candid Camera. And I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that we all go have public sex, but, you know, it, it, what am I trying to say? It's, it's easy to think of that and just to just dismiss it out of hand, but think about it seriously. <laughs> like, what if you actually saw something like that? Wouldn't it just make your day? You're on your way to work. You're tired. You, you get a Starbucks. And suddenly you turn the corner and there are two people locked in a lover's embrace on the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, that's all you would talk about, right? All day long, all week long. It's all I would talk about. And I mean, would you be angry? How can you get angry about something like that? Unless, like, you know, unless it, the people are grotesque or maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm not seeing the picture fully. But my point, I think, from a uh, writerly, creative, literary perspective is that I, I would like to see literature that performs a similar public function somehow. <laughs> like, you know, perhaps it's a literature that is uh, hybridized with graffiti art or uh, maybe it's like a smartphone literature that you know maybe it's interactive something but cynical literature in a more classic sense i think poets should start making graffiti more often like writers of any kind get some spray paint make some stencils and go write some stuff on the sides of uh, office buildings and then uh, when you're done, perhaps you might uh, copulate somewhere. I don't know. My guest today is Melanie Thorne. Her debut novel, Hand Me Down, was named one of the best books of 2012 by Kirkus Reviews. And it's available now from Plume Books. I'm very pleased to have Melanie here on the program. Her life story is uh, almost unbelievable. So uh, why don't I let her tell it? Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Melanie Thorne. So, uh, welcome to my home studio. Thank you. It's a nice studio. Yeah, and welcome to Los Angeles. Thank you. New resident. What prompted the move? Just The weather. You yeah. know, up in Northern California, I'm cold all the time. Um, the weather down here is great. 
change of pace. Literary scene seems a little nicer. San Francisco literary scene is, um, I'm going to get in trouble by, for saying this probably, but it's a little snobby and elitist and uh, not very inclusive. Really? Mm-hmm. What, like how so? Can you, can you dish some dirt? Sure. Um, people who live in San Francisco tend not to leave San Francisco. So if you come into the city for an event, they, they sort of look at you funny. Like, what are you doing here on my turf? Um, it's also really, uh, they're very much about like, quote, literary stuff, poetry. And so if you write anything that's commercial at all, you've sold out. And um, right. I'm sure not everyone is like that, but, but the people I've met seem to be that way. Um, well, I think there's, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there can be a lot of snobbishness in publishing and yeah. especially in like the capital L, you know, L literary circles or whatever. Exactly. I feel that sometimes. Yeah. I'm sure it happens down here too, but I think, um, generally people are, the younger people seem, um, much more open down here. Yeah. I mean, I like, I mean, I like it. And I think that, I mean, I feel like in Los Angeles, you know, writers who, do books are, are so marginalized you know it's not the it's not the big show in town so it's actually well we've been looking at all these apartments and everyone you know sort of asks what do you do and we say they're we're writers my, my fiance is a writer also and um they say oh well yeah whatever and then i say i've published a book with penguin and everyone has been like wow that's really impressive congratulations <laughs> right. um you know you didn't self-publish woohoo yeah. um it makes a big difference so it seems like and in san francisco no one cares you know up there um people seem very excited down here it's been interesting yeah you know it's uh i mean it's it's obviously a, a creative environment um but in terms of like snobbishness people like have you ever run into a writer uh, or dealt with somebody who was just a, a tremendous asshole to you that surprised you? Mm. Do you ever have any ugly, like, you know, can you have any memorable, ugly experiences with individual humans in the publishing world? Not directly to me, but I did a reading last week um, where there were six other people reading, and one of the women was reading about, uh, reading from a memoir about giving birth, and there was this guy, he was drunk, but he was standing in the back sort of muttering for a while, and then he actually at one point yelled, nobody cares, um, in the middle of this reading. It was it was horrible, <laughs> oh, and his girlfriend was so embarrassed, she, she was like, stop it you know shut up um wait he has a girlfriend yeah this oh. guy has a girlfriend um i'm sure that she dragged him there you know he didn't seem like he didn't seem like the kind of guy who would come to a literary event right. um i think her friend was reading was one of the readers but it was so i was just shocked you know i've never i've never seen that happen um usually people if they don't like it they just leave and he i mean he actually was like nobody cares and <laughs> so rude nobody cares if you gave birth yeah i mean i it, it was it was awful but i haven't had i don't think i've had anybody do that directed at me no one's ever heckled you no no i haven't been heckled but you know but you've you've managed to get inside of the fortress like you said you're published by penguin so did you have an, was it a, was it a, a long road to that point? It was, um, my book was originally my graduate school thesis. Um, and then another five years on and off of working on it before I got an agent and then another year before we sold it. Um, so it's been, it was about six years from start to publication. Okay. And then it had a pretty nice critical reception. It did. Yeah. I was really lucky with you in People Magazine and, um, I won the, or it was on the Kirkus best fiction book of the year list, one of the top 100 books, um, so that was surprising and really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Any um, best of list. Come on. Yeah. It was, that was awesome. Okay. So did you ever, uh, you know, during that, what was it, five or six year window in between graduate school and publication, um, did you ever find yourself uh, really low? 
Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was working three jobs. I was teaching. I was copy editing. I was, um, you know, taking anything that I could. I did. I worked for a couple weeks for this this teacher for German exchange students that was just miserable. And um, yes, lots of horrible jobs. And trying to write while you're working full time is really hard. Yeah. The energy. So how do you do it? Like, what do you like? Were you getting up early or were you staying up late? I was giving up my weekends. So I'd work all week and then I'd try to get my grading done and then I'd spend 10 hours on Saturday, maybe 10 hours on Sunday writing. Um, that was my, that was my, sort of those were my like push, the weekends were my push weekends and I, that was my writing. And were you ever uh, like, like clinically depressed or anything? Have you ever been clinically depressed? that's a whole other issue since I have, <laughs> I have, I have depression in my family that's sort of genetically in me, but, but not clinically depressed so much then. I mean, that would happen much younger in my childhood, but, um, I was depressed, just sort of generally depressed, yeah. you know, by just the beleaguered. state. Yeah. It was hard. You but, know? but you could get out of bed. Yeah, exactly. You've never had like during your like quote unquote professional creative life, a period where you were laid so low that you couldn't function. No, no, not that bad. Luckily. Wow. So yeah. you're a rarity on this program. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the people who get published are the people who overcome that, right? You can't, you know, you have to keep going. The the biggest thing is determination and and just continuing to to try your best and you know deal with all the horrible things that happen and and all the crappy jobs you have to do. And well, and you've clearly been through a lot of shit. Yeah. In your life, which you which you address in the book, and mm-hmm. which is you know well documented. I know like prepping for this uh, you've talked about it a good bit and you've been pretty open about it but yeah. like you were what northern california mm-hmm. born in you know born and then raised but you also spent some time in salt lake city mm-hmm. um you tell the story i mean what's the give give the basic uh outline of your childhood and particularly the part that wound up in the book sure um i was born in sacramento lived there um most of my childhood, although we moved a lot, my father was an abusive alcoholic, so he sort of chased us around California. We we moved to a lot of different places. We stayed with friends, and then um, we eventually got away from him. and um, And then my mom remarried a convicted sex offender when I was <laughs> ten. It's actually a step up. I from was going to say. I was like, I don't even know. How, I don't even know how to gauge that. Is that a step forward? It, it was. It was a step forward. He didn't hit her, so you know that's good. Yeah. Um, he cheated on her, but you know that's not as bad, I think, in, in my scale. Um, and then he, you know, he was in jail for a while after they got married, and then when he got back out, the condition of his parole was that he wasn't allowed to live with underage females, and so my mom. What was his thing? What was like? How did this manifest? Oh, he's he's a flasher. Um, I, you know, he's so weird. I had to imagine it for the book. I had to sort of put it, put myself in his in his head and try to think about what he did. The only thing I know for sure that he does is um, he would wear like baggy basketball shorts that he had cut a hole into, and so he'd go out and somehow you know stick his dick through his little hole in his shorts and. I don't know what the point was, if he got, like, dates that way. Where does this come from? I mean, he's obviously... Was he abused as a kid? I don't know. I think he was... I mean, his dad... I don't think he was abused sexually, but I don't think his parents were great. His dad was sort of a drug dealer for a while. Um, His mom died when he was really young, so I think that really, really fucked up his head. He he just couldn't get over his mom's death. Um, And then he didn't have support system. He's also not a smart guy, um, so why did your mom wind up with him? I, it's 
a really good question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, you know, my mom is damaged also. You know, she grew up in an abusive home. Her her mother died when she was very young, and her so step- they had that in common. Yes, and her stepmother was was actually abusive. Would hit them and wouldn't feed them and um, things like that. Jesus. So you know, those cycles of abuse go through families, and I think my mom just was looking for someone to love her and this guy showed up and in a pair of basketball shorts <laughs> God, i hope not <laughs> um yeah it's weird and and it took her a really long time to to move on it took he was in jail three different times while they were together they were married for like 11 years and 11 years yeah what did you say when you, was did he i mean he was uh, flashing you was he doing he things? wasn't flashing he was just um inappropriate with me in other ways you know long lingering hugs and sort of just like touchy feely stuff um but nothing like super hardcore nothing super hardcore with with me um one of the worst things is my my mom we had to go visit him in prison. My mom really wanted us to be a family. So while my stepdad was in prison, she would take my sister and me to go visit him. And, um, he would always, what was he in prison for? For indecent exposure for the flashing. So that's, so he'd, he'd been caught multiple times. I mean, he's been in prison in and out of prison his whole life since he was like 18, um, for indecent exposure. So he keeps doing this. It's, it's multiple times. Um, and actually he just got arrested again for, for, for using a mirror in a target to look up women's skirts. <laughs> like this just happened like a month ago. See, I am so baffled and fascinated by people's odd sexual behavior. Yeah. Like both of the criminal variety, but also of the more benign, but no less strange. Yeah. yeah. Like what, it, where, and, and it also like, I don't know. I don't know what this says about me, but sometimes like I just had a dominatrix on the program for the second time, you know, and people who do sex work and whenever this comes up in the program or whenever it comes up in my real life, I can turn it on myself and be like, I'm so boring. Like it's, it becomes a, like a, a self-criticism thing. Like, why am I so boring? But then I'm like, wait a minute, you know, maybe that's good. <laughs> yeah. Know? I think that's really, I don't know that it's boring. It's sort of, and I'm not going to use the word normal, but it's just, um, Maybe boring and normal is boring. I don't know. Well, and maybe there's, you know, the good and the bad. Who knows what, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody. Exactly. Or who doesn't want to be hurt. I don't know. I don't want to judge, but I'm also, it seems very alien to me. And especially when it's like some guy, like you've been in jail and you can't stop yourself from pulling a mirror out and target. Like, what are you, 15? Like there, there are people who the sex addicts, right? He's he's officially a sex addict, right. um, yeah. and it's a sickness like alcoholism or whatever. Um, I'm not sure I believe in that 100. percent I mean, I know alcoholism is an addiction, but but you know this sort of sex addictions, same as like gambling addicts or things like that. They're just addicted to this um, to the thrill of 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 this weird thing. I don't know. Um, yeah. He's he's an idiot. Like the, my my stepdad is just he's so stupid that um, I can't. I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't been caught more often. The, the the time he got arrested, when I had to leave home, he exposed himself to the wife of a cop, um, <laughs> who then went to her husband and got a sketch artist to to do a sketch of him. They put it all up. It a was sketch a sketch of what his face of his face, okay. and then they put it up at the targets. And the next time he came into that target, probably to do the same thing, they arrested him. Um, you know, he's not. So what is he? Was he was hanging out in like the. Um changing rooms no i think that with the mirror he was he had it on his cart and he was just walking so he i don't know exactly but he'd have he had it on the bottom of his cart somehow and he like pushed it up to women and was 
you know, sort of angling it so that he could look up their skirts just in the aisles, just in the aisles of the of the store. And a security guard, the only reason he got caught is because a security guard had seen him doing this multiple times. None of the women complained. Maybe they didn't notice, but the security guard noticed and, and caught him. And I'm sure he hasn't, um, I don't think he's had his court date yet, but with his record, he could go back to jail just for that. Um, he's has so many, he's got so many of these, it's officially the charges indecent exposure, which is just flashing. Okay. So how, and how old were you when he came into your life? 14? I was 10 when they got married. Oh, okay. Um, and then, so he went to jail and he got out and, and then when the, um, when he couldn't live with minor females anymore, I was 14. Okay. Yeah. And so what, what about your dad? Like he was lost in alcoholism during this period? No, um, he was, he was drinking, but he was still around. My sister went to live with him, um, and his crazy wife. Um, so he remarried too. Yeah. And what's, had, what's her, what's the, the new wife's oh, man, they're divorced now. Um, but she's like, I think she's schizophrenic. I mean, she's nuts. So I've seen her just flip out. She called my sister and I were at their house once and, um, we left, you know, we visited, we had dinner we went home. She called our house at like two in the morning, freaking out because she thought we had stolen her foil, her like roll of aluminum foil. She needed to make a hat. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, she'd probably, she probably would. Um, but, you know, I could hear her. My dad was on the phone and he was like, I'm really sorry. My, you know, she's freaking out. And we could hear her just screaming in the background about this foil. And we were like, we did, we, you know, I was probably 11 at that point. And we we're like, is, Why? She, is she using drugs or anything? No, I don't think so. I think she's, I mean, she's absolutely nuts. She told me she got pregnant at 16 so that she could leave her house. She hated her parents so much. She got pregnant on purpose with this guy who's like 25 Moved in with him. And then years and years later, that kid died. He, he was in a car accident. He was drunk and crashed into a tree. And her response was, well, he shouldn't have been drinking. You know, her son died. And that was her, her response. Oh, my um, God. My family is full of fucking <laughs> nutsos. Um, hey, but, you know, it's in, you know. There are these people who come from background. There, there's a lot of common threads. Yeah. And these things, like you said, perpetuate themselves. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure that, or you tell me, but it seems like uh, to, to have written a book that deals so uh, directly and deeply with these issues, did it have for you any kind of like a therapeutic or medicinal benefit? Yeah, absolutely. Um Writing the book really helped me process a lot of it. Um, really, I, I, I think the biggest thing was that I had to sort of step back and figure out what my mom, or try to figure out what my mom was thinking um, and figure out her motivations. And I think trying to place myself in her position and thinking about her childhood and, and her own damage and her own life sort of made me understand that even though it wasn't, it's not an excuse, it's not a justification, it's it's an explanation for it, you know? So I feel like... Well, yeah, it humanizes. Exactly. I mean, the, the thing about it is that um, anybody who is behaving badly as an adult or as a parent, uh, at some point, they were harmed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, I think if you, and if you think of a person as a child in an abusive home, you know, it becomes easier to have compassion for that person, or at least that, like you say, just to have some insight yeah. into how they formed. And at that level, it must be like, easier to forgive or easier to, you know, get past some of the worst things. Yeah. I think both of those things. And especially because my mom took responsibility for it too. You know, my mom was, um, 
after she got out of the relationship with with my stepdad, you know, she and even before then, she was really apologetic and she realized that she had made a huge mistake. And, um, you know, she says over and over if she could do it again, she wouldn't do it. I don't know that that's true. You know, I think we make the choices we make and it, it would probably be the same. But the fact that she says that and that she thinks that and she feels sorry for it um, made a big difference to me, you know, really made me feel better and was, it made it easier for me to forgive her. Um, and we're really good friends now. It's actually, we, this is sort of something we don't talk about a lot. It's sort of just something that doesn't come up, but, but what the book or the sex offender um, or both, <laughs> you know, just the whole process. Yeah. Both of it. Uh, me being kicked out, I think most, cause we still, she's, she called me as soon as, um, you know, her ex-husband got arrested this last month and, you know, wanted to tell me about it. Um, so, you know, we still have that connection, but the, the talking about me being kicked out and her choices that she made in response to me is something that we just don't really talk about a lot. Um, cause there's, there's a lot of hurt feelings there for me still. Um, sure, yeah. and I'm not, not angry with her anymore, but every once in a while I'll be like, God, you know, I can't believe she did that. Um, and most of the time I don't think about it. Most of the time she's just my mom and she's, she's great. She was great when, was my- she, so just so people listening are clear when your mother, when your parents divorced and your mother started the relationship with the sex offender, um, she kicked you and your sister out of the house, basically. Or a she... few years later, yeah, but yes. What and what was the moment? I mean, uh, you know, what was it? She was like, "I can't have you guys here." He his parole officer. So this is a long story too. My dad, um, my dad and the crazy his crazy wife wanted money for child support, so they wanted my sister and me to come live with them. So they called the parole officer of my stepdad and told the parole officer that they were worried about, you know, us being in the home with this sex offender. And so the parole officer then made it illegal for my stepdad to live with us. Um, and so he, either he had to go or we had to go. And my mom decided that he should be the one to stay. Do you know why? I mean, like, I mean, obviously she wanted to be with this guy, but I mean, like when you think about it, which I'm sure you have, like, do you have, have you been able to untangle the emotional, is, is there still a mystery there? A little bit. Um, a lot of it was her church too. You know, one of the things that saved her when she was younger and, and her parents were abusive was, was religion and, and the church. And Which when, church? Um, just general Christian. Okay. She went to a lot of them. I grew up in the church. I'm not, uh, I don't do go there anymore. Um, but you know, it was a big part of our lives and it was a, she was really, really dependent on her pastors and these people who were advising her to stay with this guy, you know, you, you, they would say you married him, you made this commitment to God and it was all this blah, 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 commitment to God shit about being married, um, that you can't divorce, you know, you need to give him a second chance and blah, blah, blah. So her pastors, I actually sat I had to go talk to my pastor and sit in this room with my mom and my stepdad and this pastor guy and listen to the pastor tell me that I was being selfish for wanting him to move out. Um, I mean, that was, that's something I won't forget. Um, I ended up not putting that in the book, but I might write about that some other time. Um, but that was, that was a pretty big moment for me, you know. Jesus. Um, um, literally. <laughs> um, so, okay. So... A lot of material to mine, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, uh, and you chose to write fiction. Yeah, I think it's, this seems like—I mean, on the surface, it seems like a memoir screaming to happen. Mm-hmm. But you decided to write a novel instead. Did it give you? Was it because it gave you a little bit more distance from the material, or did it give you—you know—why that choice? 
I think a big part of it was the freedom that it gave me to not, um, you know, the whole James Frey thing was happening when I was working on my book and he was getting just crucified for his choice of labels essentially. And, um, I didn't, I didn't want to have to deal with that. I didn't want to be penalized for changing things or for adjusting things. I thought that I could get at, um, bigger emotional truths with fiction, you know, being able to, to make small changes or consolidate characters or things like that, that, um, that I think people who write memoirs do to some extent, but they have a much bigger responsibility to to be truthful to the best of their ability. And in fiction, you have a lot more freedom. Um, and also, I just... I, I had never read a memoir at that point. I mean, I was in school. I was 24. All I had ever read were novels, and that was all that I could think about. It was the only way I could even think about it. Um, I also studied with Pam Houston, who's a big... You know, she says everything she writes, whether she calls it fiction or nonfiction, is 82% true. And um, I love that because I think that's true. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, like all art is autobiographical. Yeah. And uh, I like fiction where I feel like there's very little doubt that you're reading about the, the author's life in a pretty direct way. I like that, too. Yeah. You get a sense of the author without... Um, you can sort of pick and choose the things you think are true and then you meet, I love that too. And then you meet an author and you're like, Oh, that part was totally true. <laughs> um, and then you can sort of decide maybe this other part wasn't true. Um, I think that's sort of fun. And I think people assume it anyway, right? If they're reading something fictional, a lot of people will assume that it's about the author's life. And I sort of figured that would happen. Um, I wasn't sure how much I was going to talk about it about how how autobiographical it was when I was writing it. I wasn't sure how that would play out. Um, but people are really interested in the, in the nonfiction aspects. So I, I, sure. I ended up talking about it. <clears throat> so cycles of abuse, the therapeutic aspect of, of writing a book about this, um, you seem very put together. Thank you. You know, like you... You can't see what's going on in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a facade. Um, no, but I mean, I think there's something heroic about taking all of this difficult stuff and there, there's an alchemy at work when you, when, a, when someone makes art out of tragedy, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think it's always like a, it's a noble thing to do. And I'm interested in knowing, like you've, you've been through therapy. I have. I'm, you have. Okay. I'm in therapy now, actually for the first time, uh, in probably 15 years I'm in therapy now you are yeah is it helping it's helping a lot okay. yes yes because you I mean if anyone would would be a candidate you know <laughs> <laughs> I need it isn't well, <laughs> well just like my god you know it's, it's quite a burden it's yeah. quite a lot to sift through it seems like you need professionals to help yeah you know? I would, you know. Well, I think the book was therapy for a long time, too. So while I was writing it, I wasn't in therapy because I was, I was working on the book. And then when I finished this, actually what happened was when I finished the book and sent off the final, final manuscript to my editor, I basically had a nervous breakdown. Um, I, I just, the book was this thing that had been such a huge part of my life for six years was just gone. Mm -hmm. and, um, it was like a structuring device. Exactly. And it was this way for me to think about it and process it without without being emotional about it, you know, really intellectualizing it and, and putting it down on paper. And then it was just gone. And, and I flipped the fuck out. And, and I, all you were left with was the emotional content. Exactly. Right. And I, and I, I just couldn't deal with it. So that was when I went into therapy. And so it's been like a year and a half and it's really made a huge difference. Okay. So because people listening, you know, and I'm sure have stuff, at least some of the people out there have stuff. What have you learned both, you know, 
in therapy, out of therapy, in the writing of the book, research you might have done, books you might have read, about how to make sure that cycles of abuse end with you or how you you know how do you how do you stop that stuff from repeating itself because it's the kind of stuff that's so awful you think to yourself why would anyone want to repeat this yeah. and yet it happens so it's, it's powerful energy so how do you work with it what have you what have you learned about it i think awareness is the biggest thing um you know really just being aware of your feelings and where your feelings are come from you know a lot of times people you know you get angry or you're sad and you don't really understand where that's coming from especially i think if you have a lot of those feelings from the past that you haven't dealt with um so i think just being aware of of your reactions to things and how you are um how you're processing information and and the world and then how you react you know so being really conscious of of how you react to everything and um you know so how do you get really conscious are you doing anything like you have practices or strategies or I, I think just sort of trying to be you know for example if i'm um you know i get home and i'm just my my fiance hasn't cleaned the kitchen and i'm like why didn't you clean the kitchen and i'm freaking out and at some point i'm like this isn't all about the kitchen you know something else has happened i've had a bad day or something else is going on so rather than you know, whereas five years ago, I'd, you know, scream at him for a while. I calmed down. I'm like, okay, this isn't actually about him. Um, bless you. Um, so that kind of awareness is, is really important. I think. Excuse me. <laughs> bless you. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I think when it comes to any negative emotion, you know, whether it's anger or despair or, you know, half if you can actually catch yourself mm -hmm. before you become that and you can actually just say oh this is you know just just like you say it's, yeah. like, it's like shining a light on it Ex yeah and when you shine a light on it with your consciousness or whatever like it diffuses it yeah they could therapists sort of talk about mindfulness you know just sort of being, sure, yeah. yeah being aware and um and also sort of when you deal with the way especially your parents have have raised you, you you think about the ways that they do things and then you think about how you would do it differently or how things that you've gone through re, uh, affect your behaviors and then so you look at some behavior that you do and you realize well this comes from this other place if i deal with this thing that's happening or that that's making me act this way then i can possibly change the behavior i mean it's all about that awareness well yeah and you know when you talk about recovering and from and trying to transcend and change the pattern or whatever um you know, I think it's pretty admirable that you've made you've maintained a relationship with your mother. You guys have been able to yeah. recover from something pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, your is your father still with us? He is. Are you in touch with him at all? Sort of. I I just actually recently I um. Did he ever get sober, or still is he still drinking? I I don't know if he's still drinking, but he's doing meth now. Oh um, God. <laughs> He, he went to rehab and he was sober for a little while and then he moved into like a transitional living house where a bunch of quote ex addicts live and they all uh. just trade addictions. It's horrible. Um, but he, he recently got a cell phone. He couldn't call me for a long time. He didn't have a phone. And so now he sends me these weird fortune cookie texts like, may God bless your weekend and you have a grand time with like the word grand in quotation marks. They're the weirdest things. And I never know what to say. I'm just like, thanks. Um, I think my dad's brain is not all there anymore. I think yeah. he's finally killed enough brain cells that he's he's um, just not as. I mean, he used to be really funny and clever, and that's that part of him's totally gone. Actually, I'm working on an essay right now where I'm sort of talking about you know the father 
the father I knew was essentially dead. You know, this fun. Even when he was drinking, he was he was hilarious. You know, he was really funny. And, well, and drunks, I mean, they can be. They're good. They're a good time. <laughs> it's <know>? true. Um, <laughs> and my dad's just sort of a fun person, or he used to be, and now he's now he's not. Um, he he'd aged. I hadn't seen him in like five years. And I saw him a couple Christmases ago, and he had aged, and he looked 15 years older. Yeah. All his hair is gone. He's sort of yeah. stooped over. Well, you know what? I mean, addiction kills. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that line, two words, is so true. And it's like, hey, it might not happen now. It might not happen five years from now. But eventually, eventually. it's going to kill you. Ex- yeah, you know, it And it's a disease. It's, it's just like cancer. It's like or any lethal disease. You yeah. Know? Um, so, but, you know, a lot of people in your position – would be tempted to close the door on mom and dad and say, bye, I'm never going to talk to either of you ever again. I, I will never forgive you. Yeah. Um, but you haven't done that. No. And, you know, I don't know exactly what the right answer is, but whenever I see people who are at odds with f- like family members, especially, um, to the point of saying, I'm not talking to you, I'm done with you, uh, I'm not saying that that's never justified but i think there's a lot of fallacy involved in the idea that you can completely detach yourself from your family you can't run no, away you can't. they're your blood exactly you're made from them yeah and so i don't know i think there's some it's delicate obviously but i mean i think there's some wisdom in understanding that and remaining somewhat engaged yeah. even if it's from a distance i mean how do you navigate all that I'm like how do you yeah, how do you, how do you come to the point where you can say, "Mom, let's talk," or "I want to build this relationship up again," even though you married a sex offender and kicked me out of the house? You know? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I think it was a slow process. You know, it didn't happen overnight. But I was a kid. You know, I was fifteen, and so um, I missed her. You know, I was far away, and so I'd still come home for Christmases. And um, my sister and I have never not had a Christmas with my mom ever. You know, our whole lives and. I think I just really, I was really sad and I just really wanted my family back. And my mom was so good to us, you know, since my dad was so awful when we were a kid, she was, um, she was the rock, you know, she was our, our leader and our, our savior and, and, and our hero really. Right. Um, and I just, I really didn't, I didn't want to give that up. Um, and she's a good person, you know, it's not like she's, my dad has never taken responsibility for his actions. You know, he still says, you know, he'll, you know, it's not my fault. He's one of those people, the world is out to get me kind of things. And yeah, yeah. my mom is not like that. You know, my mom made a mistake because of her own damage. Um, you know, and, and you know what? There's a lot of power in somebody admitting that they made a mistake, even if the mistake is huge. Yeah. Just that simple act. It's yeah. like, you know, if she were saying, well, it's not my fault. Exactly. Yeah. It'd be a lot harder for you to have access any kind of feeling of forgiveness or, yeah right? and it got much easier when she divorced um the sex offender also. <laughs> <laughs> when he wasn't around anymore it was i've much heard easier. that's helpful <laughs> when mom divorces the sex offender um so you were you know you're a teenager like you said you're going through all this stuff i mean jesus that's such a fraught age to begin with yeah so how do, how did this manifest in your behavior um, outside of the home, like what, like what, how were you walking the halls of your high school? Um, 
That's a good question. I, I actually think that I dealt with it pretty well for the first year. And then the, the, the first year I lived away from home, I, I did okay. And then the second year I started getting where, angry. Where did you live? So I lived first with my stepdad's brother and his wife because originally it was supposed to be temporary. I was only supposed to be gone for three months. So you lived with a sex offender's brother? Uh-huh. Holy shit. Who's a normal guy. He's okay. totally normal. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, he's a nice guy. And his wife was really nice. They so were really nice. What did they have to say about the, the flasher? Um, you know, he's sort of the, the black sheep. Of the, they, nobody really likes him. Um, they're, they don't really talk to him a lot. He's not always invited to family functions. So, okay, do you think that there's, I mean, if, the, if they're from the same blood and they come from the same family and one of them turned out totally normal, is it possible that this, fla- is this flasher thing a genetic thing? It, I don't know. Like, if, if my wife and I have another kid... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you always, you know, whenever I think couples, or not whenever, but a lot of times when couples are expecting at least once in, during the pregnancy, they look at each other and say, <laughs> what, what could go wrong? Yeah, what if you just yeah. have, what if you just have a, a bad, bad seed, you know? Does that happen? I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, probably sometimes, but I really do think a lot. I mean, I, th- I, I believe we, we were born with certain inherent traits and then a lot of it is behavioral and nurture and what we're, right. you know, our experiences shape who we are. Um, just as much as our inherent traits, I think. But because you know, you can see you probably see it with your daughter. You can see personalities at like six months. Sure. Um, and so I think kids are born with personalities, but then our experiences, you know, change that and and, and shape our behavior. But um, see, I also believe that so much is transmitted to a child. Like even when they're in utero, like if the mother is really anxious or the mo- or the father is angry, like. I believe uh, all that yeah. stuff matters. Like, I was very sensitive. I, I still am, you know, obviously with my daughter, like, I don't like to get upset in front of her. Yeah. You know, like, we do this game at the end of every day where we, it's called best parts, worst parts. Aww. Where we, like, ask her, like, what was the best part, what was the worst part, and then what's the part that nobody knew about or whatever. But um, It's a great game. It's fun. You yeah. get a lot of good stuff out of a kid. And it's <laughs> truly, it's truly comedy sometimes, but... And it'll get better as she gets older. But the point I'm trying to make is that when it comes to me, because mom and dad play too, um, I'm conscious of not, like if I had a really shitty day, (laughs) I'm not going to be like, well, dad worried about taxes today, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Because I don't want to transmit that to her. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I think it's true. I think you're right. I think kids pick up on a lot more than um, some parents give them credit for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I I don't know. I think it's it's good to be very conscious of that. And I think like... it would probably surprise us how much can get transmitted in weird, like, subconscious ways. Yeah. Well, know? that's one of the things I'm discovering in therapy. You know, every once in a while I'll figure something out and I'll be like, oh, my God, this is from, you know, something that happened when I was five that I had forgotten about. Or these, right. not just maybe something, but, but continued, um, you know, continued experiences or actions that my parents did would st- are still affecting me now. Um it is it is amazing how much of our past, you know, that, that line that I think it's uh, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, if you survive childhood, you have enough to write about for the rest of your life, right? Because just so much happens when you're a kid. Right. Was it Flannery O'Connor? I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, One of those two. Yeah. One of those two. But you're anyway, probably right. Um, yeah, I don't mean to correct you. It's sort of a dickish <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> I, I, I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> um, so your sister. Are you, were you the older? Mm-hmm. So you were, so you, did you take on like a maternal role? I did very much. Um, I really, yes, I really protected her a lot when my parents were still together. 
when we were very young, they fought a lot. You know, my, my dad would be beating up my mom in the other room. And like so really badly. Oh yeah. Yeah. You oh, know, God. big, huge bruises. He used to, um, chew tobacco. So he would throw his like tobacco spit cups at her. And, um, what kind of tobacco? Uh, that skull stuff. Um, and then he also used to leave it like sitting around the house. It's really Uh, gross, but you know, he, um, you know, he threw a a mug of hot tea at her once. I remember it hit the wall and exploded. He punched out a fish tank when I was a kid with fish in it, with fish in it. He killed all my fish. I was very sad about my fish. Um, so yeah, real, real violent. My father was, and he was drunk and Mm -hmm. he was always drunk when this was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember my dad being sober very much at all when I was a kid. Um, when we when we moved out, then he would come over, and my mom wouldn't let him see us if he wasn't sober. So he'd be he'd be sober until we left, and then we'd go buy beer uh, and sit in the parking lot of a gas station and drink his beer, and then drive us around to wherever we were going. Hammered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really in some ways kind of impressed that my sister and I are still alive. Um, my dad's been in several accidents. He hit a cop car once, <laughs> ran an intersection, hit a cop. Has he gotten DUIs? Uh, yes, and he was in jail for a while, too. He got two DUIs within, like, two weeks and, and went to jail for six months. Um, the, the second DUI, he wasn't actually driving. He was pulled over on the side of the road puking, and but the cop was like, how did you get here? <laughs> he was like, I drove. <laughs> um, so that was his second what is this? What is this saying? Like, God looks out for drunks and... There's some sort of line. I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Because people have nine lives. They do. You know? I mean, how does that... And you walk around Los Angeles you know, or any city, you see people, and it's like, how are they even... How are they alive? Ambulatory and yeah. doing stuff, you know? But Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So... Uh, you're not a heavy drinker. No, I don't drink very much at all. It scared you off of it. Do you feel like, I mean, if you... I mean, obviously, it's like, I hope I don't have this addictive gene... Yeah, I do yeah. worry about that. Are you compulsive in any other ways? Like yes, you, you are. I'm. I'm. I get. I'm obsessive. I. I'm. I'm get obsessive about things, and I, I'm a worrier. So I worry constantly. I'm just. I'm an anxious person in yeah. general. Um, people say I hide it pretty well, but but I'm. I'm pretty. Are you much, anxious right now? Yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nervous but i I always get nervous for these events you know before readings i'm horribly nervous um even as a kid though when i i had my very first i used to act i was i did theater stuff and um really yeah my very first play as a kid i i puked on the side of the stage and you went back out and (laughs) look at you a a pro's pro from the beginning yeah okay Um, so i mean but i mean just like anxiousness worry but like you're not like I don't know. How else would it manifest? You're not like addicted to anything. I'm not addicted to anything. Um, I do have weird issues with sort of uh, control. I've got control issues for sure. You know, I like things to be a certain way. I like to be prepared for things. I really don't like walking into situations I'm unprepared for. Um, So that sort of thing. I like to know. I like to be able to figure things out. I really don't like when things don't, when things don't make sense. If I can't figure something out, um, it, it really makes me panicky. I, I don't. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of learning to give up control or, or be. Do you, I mean? Do you have a way? Because I mean, all of that's. I mean, I can sort of say that some of those things about myself, um, and some of it sounds actually healthy, like <laughs> wanting to be prepared. You know, or, or you'd be surprised by how many people do not care about that. Yeah, or or like you know, this is the thing because I'm sort of a neat person. Not terrible. I mean, look around. It's not like it's super freaky. Yeah, in here. this is like me. You know, you're, you're, you've got piles, right? Like, that's how I do do things. Clutter drives me crazy. Me too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's just, 
this is, I, I'm not trying to be a, a psychopath about it, but I think it's like, I think it's actually healthy to take care of the environment that you spend your time in. Like, I would agree. People who live in like a fucking pigsty. Oh my God. That's that. I think when your external world looks like that, then your internal world cannot be good. I agree. You know, it's like to have some respect for yourself. Yeah. Am I right? No, I agree with you. But, but then, but then, you know, I read something, I've read something, uh, somewhere once where it said people who can tolerate those kinds of messes are usually a lot smarter than people who can't Uh oh. because like they have, you know, you know, people who have like those office spaces that are like insane, but they, they kind of know where everything mm-hmm. is that like those kinds of people often have like a really high intelligence level and people who have like one pen on their desk. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that bad. But I just don't want things. I want things to be nice. Yeah, you know? me too. And I like, yes, I like things to look neat and put together. And I you know I don't want to live in, in filth or clutter. No. It's just, um, I think, I think, yeah, I think it, I would get depressed. I, I like to be in a space that feels nice. Yeah. You know? And I know for me, a lot of that is, you know, having grown up in a completely unstable environment, just being able to have some control over my surroundings makes a big difference to me. Right. Um, so that's, that's, See, but I didn't grow up in chaos. <laughs> so I'm, there must be something really wrong with me. I got no reason for it. Um, so you don't drink, you never did. Never a big drinker. When I was really depressed, you know, I'd, I would I would get drunk and, and smoke cigarettes that would just make me – it was like one of those, like, I don't care if I'm alive kind of thing, so I'm going to do whatever. Right, whatever. Um, you know, I went through drug phases. You know, I did some, some So you drugs. did experiment. I did. You played with fire. Yeah. But, okay, so the fact that you did that and you did not wind up developing an addiction makes me wonder, maybe you don't have the gene. Because I, like, I feel like if you – test those waters and you really are predisposed to it that it's hard to get back out it's a slippery slope yeah but i don't know who knows people pull them in that's not necessarily a black and white thing in my experience like Mm -hmm. people have different reactions or whatever but i think it's probably smart to lay off the booze (laughs) yeah probably and i just don't like it that much either like i mean honestly if i'm gonna do something i think i'd rather smoke some weed than than you know drink i think i just drinking just doesn't um I don't particularly like it. You know, very much. I'm increasingly anti. I mean, I like like a glass of wine with dinner, but like I was just talking to you before we came on. Like I, you know, had five drinks on Saturday <laughs> night. It's now a Monday. Yeah. I still feel like shit. Yeah. I'm over it. Yeah. I'm too old. And, and getting old makes a difference too. I mean, I haven't done drugs and you know hard drugs in ten years, and you know I, I don't. I wouldn't want to now. I can't imagine. I can't imagine doing anything now. It would be awful. Yeah. Um. But, you know, there were those phases and it was really escapism too. you know, just like, like most drugs and alcohol are, you know, you, you escape something or, you know, let, let your inhibitions down a little bit. Um, but you know, it was pretty easy for me to stop. I, I didn't, at some point it was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I stopped. Um, I never, really... and your mom is not an addict. No, not at all. So no, she doesn't have, even maybe, drink. Yeah. She barely drinks. Um, she doesn't do anything. What about and your sister? Did it get her or no? <sighs> My sister drinks not a lot now. She, I think she had a problem for a while. She was drinking a lot and, you know, um, one of those people who drink and drink and drink and then puke for a while and go back to drinking, you know, like every night. <laughs> Jesus. Um, which I never understood, but she's better now. She's doing okay. Yeah. You know, she's, she's grown up. It took her a little longer to get her shit together than, than it did, than, than I did. But, um, she's doing really well now. Well, 
How old was she when all this shit went down? She's two years younger than me, so like 12-ish. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough age. And then she lived with my dad, so she had much... Um, her influences were much worse. <laughs> I was going to say she had the perfect model. <laughs> she really did. And so my dad... this is how you puke and then keep drinking. My dad actually said that. I mean, my dad got it down to a routine where he would he would get all ready for work in the morning and then puke and brush his teeth and go to work. I mean, he had this... He had it down to, to the minute. The man would go to work. He would go to work. And yeah. then he would drink on his lunch break. Um... He, what did he do? Uh, he did all kinds of things. He was a gardener, manual labor stuff, okay. gardeners. Um, okay. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I was thinking like suit and tie. Like, <laughs> this guy's got some serious no. strength. No, my dad barely finished high school, so he there's no real skills. He was a musician, actually. He was a drummer for a really long time. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, of course, bands never go anywhere, and so then he had other jobs. Um, but that was his thing. He, he wanted to be a drummer. Wow. He yeah. was good, actually. He was very talented. Uh, unfortunately it's gone now. I don't... Did you inherit any of this? Yeah, actually I'm, I'm a singer. Uh, I, I sing and... Would you sing us a song? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I have to drink a little bit. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> to be able to sing in public. Jesus. I do sing. Um, I sing to my daughter at night though, but that's about, she's my only audience. Yeah. The poor thing. <laughs> um, so you got your education. Mm-hmm. That was important to you? Yes, really important. Did your, did your mother encourage this Were you, or was it something like you're like, I'm gonna do something different with my life i'm getting my shit together and i'm gonna go get educated that was exactly it neither of um, my mom finished high school had has a little bit of college but didn't ever finish college um and that was my way out i knew i knew that i needed an education to rise above my parents um, so where did you go for undergrad uc davis oh you went to uc davis for yeah, both for and both undergrad and overgrad mm-hmm. overgrad <laughs> that's good um no it's not thanks <laughs> no for, i like it over <laughs> yeah actually i do um so you got there. How did you get there? Do you have scholarships or did you take out the loans and do all that? Both. Yeah. A lot of financial aid. I did get grants since we were you know, relatively poor. Um, it's really hard now to get grants, but I, I got pretty decent grant money. Listen, if anyone out there is super loaded, do you still have student loan debt? Yeah. Okay. If anyone out there is super loaded and looking for something to do with their money, <laughs> you should cancel this girl's student <laughs> loan debt. Yes. Thank you. That would be very... For fuck's sake. That would be nice. All the shit you went through, you should not have had to pay a dime to go to school. I mean, if you had the grades and the want to. I did. I had great grades. I did get some scholarships. Um, not enough, though. No. I the, the price of education drives me crazy. It's so expensive. And it's so much easier for people to have money because people have money then also get scholarships. Well, they don't need them. Yeah. Well, no. I had Ben Fountain on this show. Um, and his father uh, was an academic. I want to say he was like the president of a university, wow. something like that. Like, you know, he was on the administrative side or the executive side of university education. But we had this conversation about this sort of thing. And Ben said something that has like, stuck to me, clearly. Um, and I think it was his, his dad was telling it to him and then he was passing it to me. But basically, they were talking about how much college education should cost. And, you know, the... The popular wisdom or one of the popular wisdoms about this is that, you know, all these young people who have ambitions and who want to transcend their station in life or whatever the case may be, you know, they should be, uh, uh, you know, assuming this huge debt, mm-hmm. often six figure debt yeah. because they are making a quote investment in themselves Yeah. so that when they emerge from a four year, you know, uh, university experience at the age of 21 or 22, they enter the workforce with $100,000 on their back. And what Ben said, or what his dad said, which I think makes a lot of sense, is that, that you know, they shouldn't be investing in themselves. We should be investing yeah. in them. Yeah. Like, there's got to be a way 
as a society for us to make college education widely accessible because yeah. what's the upside to sending all these especially in this economy oh, yeah. drives me crazy there's this I actually just saw this um one of those pictures floating around facebook that showed like the cost of putting someone in juvenile and the cost of the taxpayers of of someone who doesn't get educated and then maybe ends up in juvie or ends up crappy jobs or whatever and then the cost of putting a little bit of extra money into someone's education um you actually so it costs like you know 1.8 million dollars for this one person who doesn't get educated and if you invest a little bit you actually get millions of dollars back because they then become a contributing member of society right, right. so man it would um, logically makes sense, but our government, I mean, we don't work logically. So no, exactly. not yeah, especially lately. So you got your education. Yeah. I think that's, you know, regardless of all the financial bullshit, that's really awesome. And mm-hmm. then what did you major in, uh, in undergrad? Were you all already on the writing track at that point no. or is it something you came to later? I was a theater major, um, for, oh. for the first two or three years. Um, I really wanted to, what I wanted to be was a actress slash rock star. So who doesn't <laughs> i still do um, yeah i don't think i'd want it anymore um yeah. but my you know i grew up in music since my dad was in band so i you know my sister and i recorded our first song when i was like six and um i really wanted to be a singer guitar you know actress person and um but then theater theater people are crazy and i just i couldn't i couldn't handle it they were you know i went to uc santa cruz for a couple of semesters a couple quarters and theater people at uc santa cruz are really crazy that's where i stopped that was that was where i switched my major to english so my first quarter there i was theater and my second quarter there i switched to english you did and then i transferred back to uc davis um yeah yeah santa cruz wasn't a great place to live either and it was really expensive and um you didn't like isn't it beautiful i thought i'm I'm always i've never been there for whatever reason i've never never been there i've been i mean to san francisco a million times i've been i mean i've driven up the one so maybe i've driven through it yeah you must have driven you wouldn't be able to see very much of it but yeah it's it is pretty if you're a surfer it's a fantastic place to live yeah um i wish i was a surfer yeah in another life yeah um i'm not coordinated enough no me neither um, but you know, I have a friend who lives there, who, who lived there and was a surfer and she just loved it, but I, I didn't like it there. Um, I didn't really like the, the school was good, but it was really, they have a very specific, um, sort of set of colleges. So you don't meet people very easily. And I was a transfer student and it just wasn't, it just wasn't the place I wanted to be. Um, and I was paying $900 a month for converted garage and it right. just, yeah, it wasn't worth it. Um, Davis was a much better school for me, but the theater, Theater was really fun for a while, and then I sort of started getting more into, like, the writing, producing parts of class projects and things, and I wrote, um, I started writing some some plays for classes, and that was a lot more fun for me. And I think also I got more self-conscious as I got older, so it was harder for me to, to act, for me to be on stage, because you have to be, you have to be ridiculous, you know, when you're on stage. You really over, everything's over overblown, and I just... I started feeling stupid. So, so, um. <laughs> you know, you know. Speaking of like overblown, ridiculous, and feeling stupid, I find as I get older. I mean, you talked about wanting to be a rock star, and man, that's a young person's game. Oh yeah. Like I, you know, when I was in, because nothing is more important to somebody, or few things are more important to the emotional life of somebody who's between, say, the ages of sixteen and twenty-four, than music. Yeah. You're, you're, you're sort of like a wide open vessel at that point, and it's a beautiful thing. But as a natural function of getting older, I'm not saying that you totally shut down, but you do change. Mm-hmm. And when I look at like a Rolling Stone magazine or I look at like young rock bands and like the, 
guys are wearing their girlfriend's blue jeans and they just look like <laughs> I'm just like this is so fucking stupid yep like and then I think about these rock bands that actually do have some success and continue into older age I mean and I and by older age I mean like past the age of 30 that's old for a rock star that's old for a rock star and they, there must come a point where you look around and just go this is a fucking joke <laughs> you gotta find a way you know yeah. and I think certain bands age with dignity but man it's hard to last yeah it's really hard to last and to do it in a way that um, you know allows you your dignity, and to mm-hmm. do it in a way where you're still productive and doing interesting things, you know. Yeah, you can't write about going out drinking all the time when you're 45, right? Well, it's, I mean, some of these bands they live hard, you know, into their 40s, or I guess that you know the life is really conducive to it because yeah. you know you have an outlet. I think if I've actually thought about this because <laughs> it's like, how the fuck do these guys do it? You look at like Keith Richards; I know. he's still going. But the thing about it is that if you are an addict or if you are somebody who lives really hard and you happen to be in a, in a, you know, a world famous rock star in a band that goes into a stadium and plays to a sold out arena crowd, that is the ultimate medicine. That's true. For like the adrenaline that you get, all that human energy coming at you. Like right now in my weak, middle-aged, like 48 hour (laughs) hangover state, if I were to enter the staple center and everyone was there cheering for me <laughs> and i had my you know whatever i i can play the, the triangle my bongo drum <laughs> i think that it would magically evaporate and i think that i would have my energy back i think that it's a great profession to be in if that's your thing yeah but you know it's a it's a candle that can i mean i think that's how they um manage that because you t- it takes a lot of energy to be on stage too and i think they right. they do they feed off the audience and it makes it a little easier um even just being an actor, it takes just takes a lot of energy to be in front of even readings. You know, it just takes energy to be in front of people. You know, it makes me wonder. I wonder if we could find this out anywhere. If anyone listening knows this, but like, I wonder, on the literary side of things, what the largest crowd for a literary reading in history is. It's a good question. And who drew it? Like, has anyone ever filled an arena? <laughs> Probably. I'm sure some people have, you know, maybe Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> Just a crazy arena crowd. The lights go down and that roar, you know, I mean. I went to um, Steve Allman and Cheryl Strayed's um, Tiny Beautiful Things launch in Portland last summer. And um, that was a big theater. I mean, hundreds of people there. That was pretty big. That was probably the biggest reading I've been to. Oh, no, I take that back. I went to see Barbara Kingsolver. There were probably 400 people at that reading. That's a lot of people. That was a lot of people. That's probably the biggest reading I've been to. Yeah. But I'm sure that some people, I'm sure there have been huge, huge, huge ones. I'd be curious to know. So um, you got your English degree. Mm-hmm. You went on to get your master's. Was that was that something that you had planned once you started to get into the English thing? Or did, did you get out of, uh, did you get out of undergrad and think to yourself, what the fuck am I going to do now? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I was, well, it was before I got out, um, you know, I was about to graduate and I was exactly that. What the fuck am I going to do? And I actually was thinking about law school. So I was like visiting law schools and sitting in on classes and I thought it would be really fun. Um, I'm really analytical and I'm really good at memorizing things and I like, uh, I like sort of puzzles and law is kind of like a puzzle. So I thought it would be really fun. And then I realized that after law school, I would just be miserable, um, you know, because it's not about justice. It's, it's about, you know, figuring out a way to get around things. And so it is a puzzle, but then you're playing with real people's lives. And I just thought I couldn't do that. And then I was working with Pam Houston who suggested that I apply to graduate schools for creative writing. I was in a workshop with her and she liked my stories and 
Um, so she really, um, literally changed the course of my life. I mean, that was the whole reason I applied and I, and I got into Davis and so I was able to keep working with her and, um, it was really good for me. Yeah. I loved it. I loved grad school. You must've known that you mean, considering your, uh, childhood and your life experiences to that point, you must've known that you had a lot to work with. Right? I mean, did you have that sense of like, holy, I've got a story to tell? You know, know, I thought that when I wanted to be a musician, I actually have old journals from when I'm like 13 where I'm writing all these horrible things. And then I'm like, someday I'm going to make a song out of this and I'll be (laughs) going to make a million dollars because of all this shit that I went through. And um, that hasn't happened. But um, that was when I thought of it was really when I was thinking about writing songs. And then when I got into creative writing classes, I didn't know what to write about. And so I was sort of picking pieces of my life to talk about you know certain um certain experiences or things that had happened and then it sort of grew from there and and I and again working with Pam she was a really big influence since almost everything she writes is really autobiographical um I learned that from her and that was when I started writing much more personal stuff fearlessly yeah because I was calling it fiction you know nobody knew nobody knew unless I told them that it that it wasn't fiction did you get any people in your workshops who were like is this real? What's going on? No, I would occasionally get things like, well, I don't believe this would happen. And I'd say, well, that did happen. Yeah. Um, but that was when I learned, you know, as, as most writers do, that right. it doesn't matter whether it happened or not. It has to be believable in the story. A lot of times stuff that actually happened doesn't work in fiction no, and storytelling. People go, oh, it's like boring or yeah. tedious or weird, you know. Um, and yeah. I love the, I've, you know, I've heard that argument in a workshop environment before where it's like, it happened. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> nope, it absolutely doesn't matter. Um, I learned that really quickly within probably like a couple stories. I was like, okay, so it doesn't matter. It needs to, it needs to fit the story. Right. It has yeah. to do. So, uh, what is next for you? Like, do you, do you have nonfiction in your future? Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of moving towards nonfiction, um, sells better. First of all, sure. You make a little more money and, um, people are really interested in the nonfiction. People really like it. Um, and I've been reading more of it. So I'm working on some essays and things that, um, I think could be interesting, my hesitation, I mean, I don't care about writing about my dad since I don't talk to him. My hesitation, though, is that since my mom and I have a good relationship now, I'm sort of hesitant to write anything about her and call it nonfiction. You know, she was really good when the book came out because it was fiction and nobody knew what was real and what wasn't. Um, so I'm a little nervous about that. That's... Why don't you write about that? <laughs> I could, yeah. Write about being nervous about writing about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I could try that. It'd but, be a good start. You know... I sort of feel like you should be able to say what you need to say. I feel that way too, but we have, I, and I do. I mean, I will. It's my story, right? It's my, it's my life. It's my experience, right. and that's how I felt about my book too. But um, she's, she's great. You know, my mom is really great now, so I don't, I don't want to ruin that. Right. And well, and you know, it's like uh, you talked about mindfulness earlier, and it's like. My, you know, being mindful of what you write and and what you say. Mm-hmm. You know, like. You don't want to hurt somebody. Yeah. But you also, I mean, it's it's really hard to navigate because it's like you don't want to say something that's intentionally hurtful or that like even accidentally so because mm-hmm. you weren't conscious enough of how you were phrasing things or yeah. you were sharing something that you didn't realize they didn't want public or whatever. But um, sometimes people can be hurt by something that shouldn't. You know, it's like they're 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 afraid of being exposed, and so their their minds take off. Or, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's an overreaction. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you operate with that in mind too? You know, if someone's going to overreact to something that's really not that big of a deal, and 
I don't know. You because, can't predict that either. You know, you just, you yeah. don't know. And, you know, it's like as a writer, what, what you know, what's the old famous line? Like a, a writer who's afraid to offend someone is like a surgeon who's afraid to cut. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You sort of have to just go there. It's true. But, it, you know, I, I guess on the revision, hopefully you have a really good editor who can help you parse it. Yeah. And then maybe, I mean, would you let your mother read first before going to press? I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't talked to her about writing any nonfiction yet, so we'll we'll see. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it'll be a book. I think you know. I think probably end up being small essays that I hopefully hopefully can get in like magazines. Um, maybe I just won't tell her. <laughs> 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 um, or I think those are my options. Either I won't tell her and hope that she doesn't know, or or let her read it beforehand. I probably would, and would definitely at least talk to her. Well, about in it. the you know unsolicited advice if you're interested in maintaining the health of the relationship you should probably tell her yeah before she's like on the airplane reading like <laughs> what the fuck hey <laughs> i recognize this person's name this is me yeah oh man um and then you you moved to los angeles and so you're going to pursue some screenwriting stuff yeah too? i think that sounds interesting actually we were talking a little bit about tv writing and um i think that sounds really cool um we we looked at an apartment that had uh, one of the writers from Fringe on it, and from Fringe, Fringe, you know the the science okay. fiction show, not Friends, no, no, not yeah. Friends, Fringe. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping maybe we can meet some people and somehow get involved in in TV writing. I think that I love TV. Um, I like TV even more than movies most of the time, so I think it'd be fun. It's a good era for TV. I yeah. think. Yeah. You know what? What are your favorite shows? Oh, Modern Family is definitely a good show. Um, I really like The Good Wife. The Good Wife is really smart, well done TV. Well, who's in that? Um, Juliana Margulies. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And Josh Charles, who's actually sort of a literary person. Um, yeah, that's a great show. Um, they're just so there's some good TV out there right now that I think would be fun to get involved. Well, it's with. sort of like I mean, there's like a there's kind of a novelistic quality mm-hmm. to a lot of these series because it's not like these episodes are standalone. There's like it's a continuation. You have to keep yep. up. And speaking of which, like I've tried to get into Game of Thrones. Oh, I haven't. Oh my god. Like keeping up with it is like trying I mean all the different plot threads and characters. I'm always watching it late at night before I go to bed, but I cannot maintain And you haven't missed an episode? Well, Since... I mean, I we buy um seasons, oh. you know, and watch like try to work our way through, but it's like the the different families and who's this and who's that and who's offended by this person. <laughs> I can't like I really need to concentrate. Kind you of need the way like that, cliff notes. I do. I need like an, I need cliff notes and I need like help. You know, because I, I, I and this is not even an, uh, an exaggeration. I'm actually sometimes lying in bed and I've got the iPad out and I'm on Wikipedia, <laughs> like trying to figure out who the fuck. <laughs> so the point is that there's, uh, it, you know, it, it's increasingly common for me to need like a another level of concentration to keep up yeah which is i think a credit to the level of, so to the um like the quality of the writing yeah and the storytelling yeah. is sophisticated so i don't know i'm i'm more positive about television than i've been in a long time yeah i'm trying mm. to think of what other show i think the good wife is probably one of my favorites it's just so well done i'll have to watch um, it I mean, yeah check it out is it, is it i mean is it can i like it as a yeah, guy yeah okay. yeah my fiance likes it it's okay. smart it's just. Does it's, he really like it, or is that what just what he, what he tells you? No, he likes it. I mean, it's not his favorite show. He doesn't always watch it. But then if it's on, he'll say, "No, I don't care," and then he'll you know be hovering and he'll still be watching okay. it. Okay, so that's yeah, a good I sign. I think he likes it. All right. Yeah. Um. So essays are next. Screenwriting stuff is next. That's, Anything book length that you have, you know? Do you feel? Let me ask you this: Now that you've written this novel and it's basically, you know, you've externalized the great narrative drama of your life so far yeah it's safe to say yeah 
you don't, you don't have anything bigger than this. <laughs> I, I, I do have some other things. I mean, the, the, the next, eventually my, my half sister accused my father of raping her. This happened a few years ago. So that's probably the, the next biggest thing I will write about at some point. Oh my God. Like book length project. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that'll be eventually, um, a do we, we know what happened. I mean, was it, nobody knows. I mean, it's her word against his, um, there was no arrest made. There was no proof, but my half sister is, she's, you know, like she's got a little bit of brain. She's not really smart. She's got some issues with her, with her brain chemistry. Um, so she sort of has problems distinguishing between fiction and reality. So there's some question about, you know, what, how much of it she made up, but there's also the fact that my dad is, you know, when he's he drunk, could have been in a blackout. Yeah. Or, I, I mean, I, who knows? So that's fascinating. Yeah. So I'm really, grim. I mean, it's horrible, right? It's yeah. just absolutely horrible, but also I'm, um, I'm interested in exploring that and sort of figuring out from both sides, like how, what could have happened or, or was there any like physical evidence or anything? No, there no. was no physical evidence. I mean, there was semen on his sheets, but who knows what, you so know. the cops came in. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, wow. I mean, she, they, they called the cops and everything. Yeah. But they, that wasn't conclusive. You know, there was no, um, no conclusive evidence. But that was sort of, so that happened when I was in grad school. Um, and so this has been sort of, you know, sort of percolating in my head for a while. Um, Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> be fun, be a fun, fun project for you. Yes, I'm all full of fun stories, happy books. I'm the happy person. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> um, well, it's been a great pleasure talking to yeah. you. Congratulations on Thank all of your you. success and, and for finding a way to take all this stuff and to do something uh, positive with it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was great. I was excited. I love the show. So. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Melanie Thorne. Go get her novel. It's called Hand Me Down. It's available now from Plume. You can find Melanie online at MelanieThorne.com. She's on the Twitter where her handle is at MThorneAuthor, and that's Thorne with an E. And I also believe she's on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Uh, of course, Kill Rockstars is, uh, is not responsible for the song you're hearing currently, which is kind of making me sleepy. This is uh, Jim Nopede, number one, that famous track from Eric uh, Satie. Sort of makes you want to... Uh, have you ever seen... Um, what's that movie? The Royal Tenenbaums, where Owen Wilson is playing... Uh, God, I'm forgetting everything. He plays the writer... What is his name in that movie? Wildcat. What's I know it, but I can't think of it. But he's on mescaline when this song is playing. And I remember Luke Wilson turns to him and says, Are you on mescaline? <laughs> and uh, Owen Wilson says, Very much so, which I always liked. So don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program, to access premium content, the full archives, etc. So please go get the app. It's free. And uh, be more cynical while you're at it. Do something public. Do something in public that is cynical and designed to wake people up, to wake yourself up. Why are writers always so cloistered? Why do we celebrate that? 
talk about how we live in caves and never see daylight. We need to take it to the streets, is what I'm saying. Please remember that Sigmund Freud's ashes were buried in the Jewish cemetery called Golders Green and that Lavoisier was guillotined in the Reign of Terror. That is it for now. Thanks to Melanie Thorne. Thanks to all of you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And I'll be back in just a few days with another writerly type person. I will sit down in this chair in front of this microphone and I will prepare to have an episode in public. (laughs) 